Are opponents of the Bush administration overplaying an intelligence report that says Iran is no longer pursuing nuclear weapons? We'll ask national security expert Frank Gaffney. Is being just a housewife a bad thing? We'll discuss passionate homemaking today. Also, movie critic Michael Medved weighs in on the Golden Compass. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Today is the 66th anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Of course, every day uh, we play... Franklin Roosevelt, as he is addressing a joint session of Congress, uh, really announcing that uh, this is a date that is going to be historical and will be remembered throughout the future of this country. And uh, really, the United States will never forget the date of the attack on the U.S. It was 66 years ago on December 7th. Uh, In that bite that we just played, he described to Congress the attack on Pearl Harbor. He also vowed, this is FDR, vowing that the United States was entering World War II with victory in mind. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. And certainly this strength is an inspiration for the war against Islamofascism, against jihadism that we are pursuing today. And there are enemies of those who are pursuing this war. There are folks in Congress who want to pull the rug out from under the war, even the funds out from under our troops. And uh, that is a subject for discussion as Congress continues to debate on that. I will mention that the defense authorization bill that has been debated in Congress Uh, Something happened with that yesterday that uh, you may not know, but um, we have discussed before on this program that uh, the hate crimes bill uh, that would really uh, enhance penalties if a crime is committed because someone is a homosexual would also get the federal government involved in such crimes and really uh, advance protections, make homosexuality a protected class, that was in the, the bill, and it was actually removed yesterday to get a better chance of uh, getting the funding renewed by Congress. That's an interesting development. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, former senator and presidential hopeful Mike Ravel uh, weighed in on this report 
that uh, came out earlier this week about Iran, the report from the National Intelligence Estimate, saying that Iran really stopped trying to develop a nuclear weapon in 2003. We're going to talk about that later in the program. But here's Mike uh, Gravel, one of the candidates, one of the lesser Democrat candidates campaigning in Iowa, saying this report uh, basically is a blow to the Bush administration. Iran's not a problem, never has been, never will be. And uh, Senator Joe Biden, also a presidential candidate campaigning in Iowa, talked also about the report, saying George Bush is untrustworthy. Iran is not a nuclear threat to the United States of America. Iran should be dealt with directly with the rest of the world at our side. But we've made it more difficult now because who is going to trust us? Who in Europe? Who in China? Who in Russia? And uh, Frank Gaffney is going to join us a little bit later in the program to answer the question, uh, does he think Iran is developing a nuclear weapon or not? This new intelligent report, of course, says not since 2003. Uh, But we've got to really understand if this is true and whether this means that we should back off in trying to get them to halt their nuclear program. We will ask uh, Frank Gaffney, former Reagan administration official, And we're going to also ask him about the Israel-Palestine peace process and also this development that Abu Dhabi uh, has purchased nearly 5% of Citibank's stock. Is that a good idea? Uh, He'll join us uh, next segment to talk about it. Also, is homemaking a lost art? Is a woman who seeks to concentrate on home and family desiring too little? Is she selling herself short? Or is this a woman's highest calling? We're going to discuss that with a former feminist later in the program and also take your calls. Uh, Yesterday, of course, I was not here and I didn't get to discuss with you or hear your reactions, although I did listen on the radio to hear what Dr. Johnson and what you think about uh, Mitt Romney's religion speech yesterday. Uh, But, uh, you know, I thought it was a fairly good speech. I don't know how many minds it really changed. But here's Mitt Romney in that speech yesterday in College Station. A person should not be elected because of his faith, nor should he be rejected because of his faith. You know, I have to admit uh, that I did like the speech simply because it was such a public discussion of the role of religious faith and really the secularization of this culture. And also he threw in the threat of uh, Islamic jihad, uh, which is very appropriate, I think. I think the speech might help him a little bit with some people. But I also think, interestingly enough, uh, that it might help Mike Huckabee because it was such a good discussion of the role of religious faith in America. And some people have said that uh, this speech might hurt Mike Huckabee. Uh, But I think who it hurts is Rudy Giuliani, because uh, this prominent discussion of the importance of faith at the same time that you're getting these uh, stories coming out about Rudy Giuliani and uh, having a mistress during uh, his mayorship of New York and that the taxpayer funds were going to provide protection for her, to provide limos for her. So in a sense, I think it provides a contrast between the religious candidates and Rudy Giuliani. And so I think it helps uh, Huckabee and Romney. Um, Now, I did hear several reactions to the speech before I heard the speech. uh, And uh, one of them was from Richard Land. And uh, let's go now to uh, the speech. Um, One more bite from Mitt Romney, Larry, because I know that that's what we'd planned to do. This was something that I thought was excellent in the speech because he was comparing the moral positions of himself as a Mormon and also the moral positions of Christians and saying we're really on on the same page there. It's important to recognize that while differences in theology exist between the churches in America, we share a common creed of moral convictions. 
and where the affairs of our nation are concerned, it's usually a sound rule to focus on the latter, on the great moral principles that urge us all on a common course. I think this is a line that probably helps him most with uh, people who are worried about his Mormonism. Um, but let's go now to, first of all, let's open up the phones. And if you didn't get to weigh in yesterday and you would like to uh, tell us and tell our audience how you felt about this speech, and especially whether you think it helps Mitt Romney at all, or if it doesn't help him, or uh, if you support him, if you don't, 800-881-9270. But here's Dr. Richard Land. He's president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was invited to be there. He did go. He was there uh, listening to the speech and with all the excitement going on uh, in College Station. And he actually applauds the speech, especially the idea of the role of faith in politics. It's a ringing defense of the role that religion has played and should play and should not play in American public society. There was another line from the speech that I liked. It said, freedom requires religion just as religion requires freedom. Now, I heard Barry Lynn from Americans United for the separation of church and state uh, just blasting that line, but I thought it was a great line. I think it's really true, and I think our founders had that in mind. But to me, uh, Romney was saying he won't be a theocrat. Now, true Mormonism would have a theocracy as a goal, but I think Romney was trying to signal that's not what he would be. And I think we, in a sense, already knew that. Uh, But here is Richard Land again weighing in on the speech. He said it won't hurt his chances, Romney's chances, of winning the GOP nomination. I mean, I can't imagine that there's anyone who would be less likely to vote for Mitt Romney after hearing this speech who's likely to vote in a Republican primary. Uh, we are uh, taking your calls, 800-881-9270. Did you hear the speech? Uh, does it make you more or less likely to vote for Mitt Romney? What did you think of his speech yesterday? Let's go to Morris in Allen. Morris, thanks for calling. Yeah, Morris. Uh, i am uh, been listening to Dr. You know, uh, Johnson throughout the um, course of several months here, but I'm, I'm LDS. I'm Mormon. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I've been listening... You know, a lot of the misconceptions that, that are coming out about, about the church, I agree with what Dr. Johnson says. But uh, You agree with what Dr. Johnson says about Mormonism? No, not necessarily about Mormonism, about other things, other subjects. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I've noticed that, for example, if you, there's misconceptions about the Seventh-day Adventists and the, and the Jehovah Witness and so forth because they don't know much about the church. And I think, uh, you know, like Dr. Roberts said the other day, there was a lot of things that were not really accurate on what he said, you know, about the Trinity and so forth and baptism for the dead. And, okay, and but I'm, I'm really asking the question today. That is a good discussion for another day. But today I want to know, I, did the speech help the speech. Romney? Did you like the speech? And are you supporting Romney? Uh, yeah, the speech. I thought it was very uh, much to the point. I think that uh, it showed his moral character a little bit better. I think if uh, people can <clears throat> can look at that and, and put aside maybe their their uh, just misconceptions about Mormonism, that that it would be it would be good. You know, I, I would vote for him definitely because I, I think that he's a moral man. And the way the country's going nowadays, you know, with all the uh, things that are happening spiritually with the people, I think we need somebody that will kind of set the pace for getting us back on track. Good to have a religious person in office, I guess. Okay, thank you, Maurice. We appreciate your call. Let's go now to uh, Bob listening uh, online from Rapid City, South Dakota. Bob, thanks for calling. Hi, Penna. Uh, I just think that there are two candidates that evangelical Christians cannot support uh, in the next election. Uh, Both Giuliani and Romney mean we lose 
if we're trying to elect a conservative pro-life candidate. And, and, we, and, and if either of those are elected, we will also lose. Uh, one, because he's, he has stated publicly he is not in support of life, and he is for um, homosexual marriage. Are you talking about Giuliani right now or Correct. Romney? Giuliani. Okay. But, both, but Romney also has not governed that way in Massachusetts. If you look at his record, and he was very strongly in support of a woman's right to choose, in his own words, uh, as he ran for Senate and governor, then he has the audacity to claim that he's been pro-life all his life. And then he said a couple weeks ago, well, I've had a change. I was wrong. Which Romney do you believe? And I believe he's lied to us, to, to our face. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what about his position on homosexuality? Because in a sense, he's admitted, Bob, that uh, he had a conversion over stem cell research when he was governor but uh, on the life issue. But the homosexual issue, in a sense, he really pandered to the gays as governor. And now he says that he is uh, going to advance a more pro-family agenda. So that, to me, is more bothersome. What do you think? In Sandy Rios's, uh program in Chicago, uh, I believe it was about two weeks ago, she had the head of Massachusetts Resistance on, and he brought up the fact that the New York Times quoted Romney, or quoted that Romney made a deal with the homosexual community not to oppose the judge's ruling if the judge ruled against and to the fact that, we, that they had to have uh, homosexual marriage in, in Massachusetts, even though there was no constitutional basis for that uh, ruling by the judge, he made a deal with the homosexual community that he would not oppose that ruling. And then he forced the judges of the state to implement homosexual marriage. Very I interesting. Explored. Bob, uh, we only have a few seconds left uh, before the hard break, but can you tell me, uh, can you take yourself out of what you know about Mitt Romney and just listening to the speech yesterday, do you think it helps him, hurts him, or kind of even? I think Pena, it, it helps him in that it confuses the issue more, and I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to come across as somebody that's pro-life and for uh, the sanctity of marriage when he hasn't governed that way in the past. If you don't check his record, if you just take it on the, on the surface, that seems very plausible to accept him and what he's saying. But if you check his record, it's not realistic. All right, Bob, thanks so much. Uh, we appreciate your calling in today, and... Uh, your support of the Criswell College. And um, ladies and gentlemen, we do have lots of foreign policy questions for our next guest, Frank Gaffney. We're going to ask him about Iran. We're going to ask him about a Palestinian state and lots more. So stay with us. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's Chriswell.edu.
You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. We're dealing with a country that is still enriching uranium and remains a leading state sponsor of terrorism. And that is a cause of great concern to the United States. That's Vice President Dick Cheney in a speech today to the veterans of foreign wars in Kansas City, Missouri. He also said nuclear proliferation must be stopped. Not everyone understands the threat of nuclear proliferation in Iran or elsewhere. But we and our allies do understand the threat, and we have a duty to prevent it. And Vice President Cheney saying that the United States isn't the only country concerned about Iran. Our concern is shared with the international community, including the key powers seeking to solve the Iranian nuclear issue in the United Kingdom, Russia, China, France, and Germany. Okay, lots of people are calling for the United States to back off on sanctions on Iran for violating agreements concerning their nuclear program since this national intelligence estimate came out. And I wonder if that's a good idea or not. With us to talk about it is Frank Gaffney. Frank Gaffney is the founder and president of Center for Security Policy. He's a lead author of War Footing, 10 Steps America Must Take to Prevail in the War for a Free World. He was in the Reagan administration as Assistant Secretary of Defense. And uh, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Penn, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Frank, uh, what about this, uh, this report that came out? Are people overplaying uh, its importance? Those who are reading into the National Intelligence Estimate that the threat from Iran has diminished are definitely uh, reading too much into it and I think are, are being uh, either misled or, or misleading. Uh, as they do so. This is a country, sadly, uh, with a remarkable people, uh, tremendous history, um, a, a potential to contribute to the world in so many ways that is being driven into the ground by a regime that is imposed for decades now a a theocratic, repressive, totalitarian form of government, and has had that government driven by an ambition not only to obtain nuclear weapons, but sadly to use them uh, against Israel, they've made clear, uh, and I'm afraid against the United States as well. So to read, as many have, into this national intelligence estimate that uh, the danger is abated uh, or perhaps even gone away altogether um, misses entirely uh, the true character of the regime in Iran and sets us up for potential catastrophe. Do you believe, I know the report says that uh, they're still enriching uranium and they're pursuing their peaceful nuclear program, saying that in 2003 they basically stopped developing a nuclear weapon. I mean, is that a true statement? Is it misleading in some way? Well, there are two statements there. Um, There's no doubt that the nuclear uh, program, including the enrichment of uranium, is continuing. And that enrichment of uranium can feed directly into the abiding ambition, as I said, of the Iranian regime to have a nuclear weapon. The feature of this national intelligence estimate is an assertion, and I believe it is just that, an assertion that Iran stopped producing or pursuing, rather, nuclear weapons back in 2003 for some 
undetermined period of time. They're not sure that they haven't reversed that action, but they feel with high confidence, the intelligence community does, that it did at some point in 2003 stop pursuing nuclear weapons. So, as I say, at the very best, this is misleading, uh, because we know that the way virtually all of the nuclear weapon states, other than Britain, France, uh, Britain, uh, Russia, and ourselves, the Soviet Union at the time, used a civilian nuclear program to mask their nuclear weapons. Well, actually. certainly North Korea is among them also. Most recently, yeah, but India and, uh, for that matter, China and France uh, were also states uh, that have done so. Uh, Israel, perhaps, uh, is another. So, you know, there's a well-traveled road here whereby countries can do what Iran is doing right now, which is to put into place all of the infrastructure needed to have nominally a civilian nuclear power program and in the process obtain the infrastructure that's required for nuclear weapons as well. Okay, speaking of Israel, uh, Frank, and Frank Gaffney is with us. Uh, He heads up the Center for Security Policy. Um, Of course, last week we reported on the summit in Annapolis and uh, this attempt to get a Palestinian state to get an agreement uh, between Israel and Palestine. And, uh, you know, are you worried that too much will be given away during these last months of the Bush administration? I am indeed. I, I think with each passing day since Annapolis, it's become more and more clear that this was an exercise in futility um, and and potentially one that will be very harmful to our friends in Israel. And I say our friends in Israel because I think we ought to be clear about this. Uh, the people of Israel are people like us. They're, they're people who wish to live in peace with their neighbors. They're people who cherish freedom. They're people who um, have uh, the the uh, traditions of a, of a great faith and wish to preserve it in the face of immense animosity from their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And, and sadly, I'm afraid what will come out of Annapolis is um, a set of arrangements and, uh, and understandings that may not lead to a peace agreement, but will nonetheless create new and very much more dangerous conditions for the state of Israel on the front lines of this war for the free world and in the process, imperiling not only their interests but ours as well. Well, it seems like, you know, you can understand just as a human being that you'd want to live in security, but the Israelis have been uh, actually, I feel, quite brave over the last decades uh, in dealing with the Palestinians. Are they being worn down in a sense, and are we helping to do that? I think it's fair to say they've been brave to the point of being foolish about it quite frankly. Um, Before we turn to the Palestinians, you know, Israel abandoned a very strategic position in southern Lebanon in the Mm -hmm. hopes that that would somehow improve its security situation. In fact, we now know Hezbollah, a a terrorist organization committed to the destruction of the state of Israel, has filled the vacuum. They subsequently uh, relinquished Gaza, with much the same mindset, uh, hoping the Palestinians would take over there and and manage the place and become responsible partners and so on. In turn, another terrorist organization, Hamas, has taken it over, filled the vacuum, and is using that territory as has Lebanon, uh, so the, the Hezbollah units in South Lebanon. And that certainly so begs the question: who who are we negotiating with? 
well, what leader? Negotiating, we think we're negotiating with the folks in Fatah, Abu Mazen, uh, the uh, Mahmoud Abbas is also his name, uh, of the Palestinian Authority, who is also uh, running a terrorist organization. In fact, uh, I was told just today that in the immediate run-up to, uh, to the uh, Annapolis Conversations, Palestinian National Authority television was running endlessly clips about how uh, the the territory that was Israel prior to the 1967 war, that is to say the original territory of Israel, is occupied land and will be freed by uh, by the Palestinians. And it's that kind of evidence of the true intentions of these folks that makes, I think, under any foreseeable set of circumstances, the idea of creating a Palestinian state Again, at best foolish and at worst uh, an invitation to the destruction of Israel. Frank, there's so much to talk to you about. I wish we had more time, but we don't. Uh, but I want to ask you one more question. Uh, you wrote a piece in the Washington Times that appeared this week, Sharia's Trojan Horse. And I've been concerned when I see that Abu Dhabi uh, has actually purchased uh, $7.5 billion worth, uh, 4.5% of the stock of Citibank. Uh, that worries me. Does it worry you? It does indeed. Um, the article appeared in the Washington Times, as you say, and it talks about a little bit the sovereign wealth issue, but there's another aspect to this, Penna, that's sort of the flip side, and maybe we can talk about it at greater length another time, but it's called Sharia finance. And uh, these two uh, approaches are essentially resulting in the penetration of our capital markets by uh, entities uh, and, in some cases, uh, organizations that I think do not have our best interests at stake. They are pursuing, in the form of Sharia, as the uh, the Muslims call it, uh, an ideology that is theocratic, that is a legal code, and that is essentially a brutal, totalitarian, and repressive arrangement. And it it, it is completely contrary to the Constitution and, and certainly the interests of the United States, and therefore I think we need to be very, very leery of this initiative and uh, warn Wall Street off of it. So I appreciate the chance to make a, make a plug for that. We will uh, have you back to talk about it more. I think it's a real threat, uh, as you call it in your uh, Washington Times piece. It's a Trojan horse. Frank Gaffney, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your input. Thank you so much. That is Frank Gaffney, president of the Center for Security Policy. His book is called War Footing. And I think we do have to be careful of uh, the influence of uh, Islamists in our business culture, in our banking culture. And uh, in a sense, this uh, particular transaction with Citibank did not have to be approved by the U.S. government because it was only 4.9% of the bank. If it was 5% or over, then, uh, then it has to get American approval or government approval. And uh, so it's very interesting that it's capped off at 4.9%. And, of course, it uh, I guess it saved uh, the bacon of Citibank and... Uh, it prevented the government from having to come in and uh, bail them out. Uh, so some people saw that as a good thing. Ladies and gentlemen, next up, we are going to switch gears totally and talk about something very interesting to many of you. A former feminist who is now a homeschooling mother of eight will join us to talk about the idea of stirring up women's passion for making a home. Is homemaking somehow a lesser profession or is it the highest calling a woman can have? We're going to ask our guest and we're going to get your take On the matter, our number is 800-881-9270.
You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. A very interesting topic, and uh, the question that uh, our next guest asks in her book is, why is it okay for a young woman to desire any pursuit except that of the biblical homemaker? Uh, Jenny Chauncey is a former feminist turned homemaker. She's co-authored a book uh, with um, Stacey McDonald, Passionate Housewives, Desperate for God. And Jenny, I thought it was Desperate Housewives. This is the anti-Desperate Housewives, isn't it? Oh, it is. We we wanted to definitely send a subtle message out to the culture that that, that way is not the right way. Jenny, you were a feminist. What happened? Well, I actually grew up in a very solid Christian home and desired all my life to follow the Lord and to marry and, and obey the Lord's commands for women and families. And I went off to college and got my head all puffed up and decided, nah, that's not really for me. I'm smarter than that. I'm better than that. After all, there's nothing to do at home except change diapers and wipe noses. So I came out four years later telling my parents, I'm not going to get married. Most of the men I met are jerks. I would really rather stay single and serve the Lord and just do my own thing. And my parents So you were a were, Christian feminist in a yeah, sense? I would have called myself a Christian feminist. I definitely wouldn't have considered myself radical. I didn't embrace excuse me, abortion or some of the other major tenets of the movement. But I really did think that most of what the Bible had to say to women was outdated and was written by men, and I could just throw it out the window. Hmm. So what happened to you? How did you change? Because now you're the mother of eight. Uh, You're focusing on your home and family as your number one priority, and you're also helping other mothers to do so. So what happened? Well, the Lord was very gracious to me, and He really broke me in many different ways. One of the main ways was that He brought several very godly women who were married to godly men into my life, and including my mom and dad, but they primarily prayed for me at a distance because I'd kind of separated myself from my family and gone my own way. But the Lord brought people who showed me and challenged me to, to understand that Scripture didn't change, that God didn't change, and that what He commanded was just as relevant today as it was in the first century or the third century B.C., and I argued and argued and argued, but I always found that I couldn't answer the question about the authority of Scripture. Is God authoritative, or does He change? Does His Word change? And if it changes, then what else can we throw out? And the Lord just really used that to remove the blinders from my eyes and cause me to look around and evaluate my worldview. And so I started. To, I decided I'm going to really study feminism and find out where it came from, because surely there's some parts of it I can agree with, but you know maybe I'm going to throw out the other parts that don't comport with the Lord's Word. And I was very shocked as I studied to find just how tied into Marxism and communism and anti-family, anti-marriage the early feminists were back in the 1840s and the 1790s. Really? Okay. Uh, because we've heard that, oh, they were pro-life and uh, they were just basically trying to help women get some equal rights, et cetera, et cetera. But sure, when it really got radicalized was Betty Friedan and company. Right. And, and, you know, it's interesting that most people say, oh, well, then you take issue with the radicals of the 60s, because that's really where Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and Simone de Beauvoir got their start. And I said, well, you know, I did, I did read uh, about them, but I also went back to the 1840s and the 1790s, because the radicalism was there as well. It's not like it appeared brand new and shiny in the 60s. It actually had its roots much deeper. And, you know, no, no mistake, there were a lot of really good women who were involved in the women's movement who were pro-life. I mean, Susan B. Anthony was violently anti-abortion. She said we should never kill children in the name of freedom for women. But the roots of the feminist movement were very much in the destruction of the Christian family, and they said this very boldly, there should be no marriage 
Women should be free to come and go in and out of relationships as they choose. But tragically, what they couldn't see was the results of what would come about from a free love society. And I think we look around today and we see it. It's just so stark, the divorce rate, the abuse rate, Mm -hmm. the girls who are in and out of hookup relationships with no commitment from the men in their lives and left just emotionally ravaged as well as physically ravaged by disease. It really breaks my heart. Okay, I want to ask you in in a moment about the importance of homemaking, but also is it wrong, uh, and also let's open up the phones on this, 800-881-9270. Give us a call. Jenny Chancy is our guest. Her book, Passionate Housewives, Desperate for God. And you're talking about the importance of focusing on your children and your home, but is it wrong for a woman, a mother, to work outside the home? I think that we really have to go back and say, what does the Scripture tell us is the woman's role, and why is it important? Or maybe it's not. Maybe we really need to look and say, that was cultural. And throughout Scripture, at the very beginning, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. So right off the bat, we find out that male is not enough. To complete God's image, we need female, and we need both of them together working in harmony to paint a good image of Christ in the Church. And this is the mystery that was revealed in the New Testament. Paul said, let me reveal to you now that marriage is something greater. It's not just man and woman doing their thing together. It is a picture for the entire world of Christ and his bride. So that means that there are specific roles. Christ came as our our King and our Savior and our Shepherd. He is our leader. He's the one who came to pay for the price for our sin. And the Church is to respond by producing the fruitfulness of the Gospel and and caring for the poor, taking care of the needy. So there is a definite role that the Church has and a role that Christ has, and we need to reflect those in our marriages and through the way that we parent our children. So I think when we, when we start trying to find exceptions to the rule and say, yeah, but I don't feel like getting married, and so therefore I'm an exception and I'm going to do my own thing, we're basing principles on exceptions rather than on the norm that God has. And but what do you say to someone who would like, I mean, because I know lots of single women who would love to be married, and they're just yes. not. They're just not finding someone. Oh, sure. And there, there are some wonderful books that have been written specifically for um, single women who are facing that situation. And I think we are living in a really tough time for girls. I mean, I, I understand because I went through college seeing all these men who wanted to get married only for materialistic reasons. They were going to have the trophy wife maybe a couple of kids, but mostly the nice house and the three cars. And I said, no way. How will I ever find Mr. Wright? And I was very bitter when I got out of college. I thought, there are no men left. There's just no way. I'm not getting married. And the Lord did bring me my husband, but it was from 750 miles away, a person I'd never met, and through amazing circumstances. And I just really encouraged girls to take the focus off of marriage and put it back on Christ and serving Christ within the family and within the church. What role does God have for me to do? Because it's not like you're on hold or you're twiddling your thumbs waiting for Prince Charming until he comes, because God has work for us to do whether we're married or single. Okay, now let me go back to the question I asked. It wasn't quite answered, and that is, okay, there's a a woman going to college. She's preparing for a career. She has a career. She meets Mr. Wright and gets married, um, and she has kids. And maybe for financial reasons or just because she likes to, you know, what is the, in your interpretation, what is the biblical take on her actually spending some of her day working outside the home? Well, I think, first of all, ask about what does Titus 2 say, that the the older women are to teach the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober, industrious keepers of the home, and to pass that on to the next generation. And number one, we we are called to be real helpers to our husbands. That doesn't just mean 
making his bed and washing his socks. It really goes farther than that. And how do we find that model? We go back to Proverbs 31. What is she doing for her husband? And it's, it's a myriad of things. She's managing the family budget. She's deciding what we spend on food and how, and even how we decorate the home. She's making decisions on that. She's deciding on augmenting the estate by going out and purchasing land. And that doesn't necessarily mean every woman's got to buy a vineyard. <laughs> it means that she's thinking very carefully about the family finances. She is available to train the children daily at her knee. She's available to delegate tasks. She even, perhaps in a season of life, will run a home business and provide goods and services. So it's not like we're saying women are never allowed to earn money and earning a living in any way or shape or form is wrong. Actually, women have a very solid economic contribution to the family. They don't have to. It's not a command that a woman must run a home business. But there's not a problem with that. The problem comes when we uproot ourselves from that sphere where God has put us to be very creative, very proactive, and very available to our husband and our children, and we go and we sell our abilities and our talents to someone outside of the home and say, I'll serve you eight hours a day, and then I'll go home and serve my husband and my kids. And a lot of families are finding this just doesn't work. And and laying aside the financial reasons, because those are very real, we can come back to those. But if it's just, I feel like I'm wasting my talents and I really need to do this, I would challenge women to think about how they can use those same talents in the home. Because today, the Internet makes it wide open Mm -hmm. for a huge variety of talents and businesses to be done online. Um, anything for writing. What about the creativity that uh, that exists with uh, regard to the internet and women being able to, you know, spend a lot of time at home, but also, you know, maybe dealing trading kids with friends and working part time a few hours a week out. I mean, I just want to I didn't want to get your real take on that for women because there are there are countless women in that situation. Women who are working, you mean, to augment part the income? T- part-time work, outside, part-in-time, inside. Right. Well, I think, again, to come back to who is meant to instruct the children, and, and we'll talk about women who don't have children in a second, but for women who have children, God has given the parents to be the primary instructors. We are called to walk with our children. It says when you rise up, when you walk in the way, when you sit down, when you go to sleep at night, you are imparting these values and traditions of the scripture and the teachings of Christ to your children. So anytime that you are out of the home or going away, you have to hand your children over to someone else. And for women who are forced to work because they can't make ends meet, often they are fortunate enough to have family members or grandparents who are willing to take care of the children. But too often they end up putting the children in daycare. And, and here's the terrible irony of this. You put, let's say, I put my children in, in daycare so I can go off and have a job. That necessitates another woman putting her children in daycare so she can take care of my children. It's a domino fact, effect. Exactly. There's a great quote about this in Brian Robertson's book, Forced Labor, where he, he talked to a daycare worker who commented that the daycare crisis was so acute that there weren't enough workers to take care of the children of the daycare workers. And, Amazing. you know, you just stop and go, well, wait a second. If they took care of their own kids, that would free up the other people to take care of their own. But the problem is, like you said, we have a domino effect, and it's gotten to the point where it's very hard to just walk away and go back. Jenny Chancy has been my guest. Uh, The book is Passionate Housewives, Desperate for God, also addressing the lost art of homemaking, and I'm sure seeing that in the culture. Jenny, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, next up, uh, KCBI's John McClain uh, interviewed Michael Medved, talk show host and movie critic, On this uh, movie that comes out today, The Golden Compass, we'll have that right after this.
If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Well, I spent a little time yesterday writing an article uh, for the Baptist Press. It'll come out in a couple of weeks, and I titled it Atheism at Christmas Time. And uh, one of the things mentioned in there is something that happened this week. Uh, remember Michael Newdow, the atheist uh, that uh, challenged under God in the pledge? He's back in court. He was in court, the Ninth Circuit out in California, challenging under God in the pledge again, and also uh, God in our national motto. So we'll see what happens there. He's an atheist. He wants to voice that on the society. But also so all week we've been talking about this new movie coming out today, The Golden Compass. It's based on uh, atheist Philip Pullman's books, the first book in the trilogy, His Dark Materials. And today, uh, John McClain at KCBI had the opportunity uh, to speak with Michael Medved, movie critic, about The Golden Compass. And uh, Michael Medved does have some problems with it. Well, well, first of all, it's very different from the Harry Potter films, and people have to keep that in mind because... I think there is a certain extent of crying wolf for a lot of parents. There was a lot of um, criticism and upset about the Harry Potter films, and then kids saw it anyway. And uh, I don't, I don't happen to believe that there was any specific agenda to attack religious faith in the Harry Potter films. There is here. Th- these films are both better. Um, at this film, particularly the Golden Compass is better cinematically because it it really is great to watch and you're sort of swept up into it and it's well acted but it also has an unquestioning uh, hostility toward uh, Christianity in particular and religious faith in general the whole struggle in the film is against an evil empire that's identified as the magisterium and the term magisterium is the term that the Catholic Church uses to refer to the Pope and the Cardinals in communion and uh, the headquarters of this evil empire uh, are established in cathedrals, big cathedrals, and sometimes you see they have icons and, and pictures of uh, people with halos. And, and then, of course, the, the leading uh, power force is played by the actor Derek Jacoby, and he's made up to look exactly like Pope Benedict XVI. So particularly those people who uh, have any connection with or affection for the Catholic Church are, are going to get a pretty pretty direct poke in the eye, well, but, not, but not just them, uh, because one of the other things people have to be prepared for, and, and I think parents really do have to look for this, even for little kids, is one of the themes of the movie The Golden Compass is that children come equipped, all uh, humans come equipped with their own demon, <laughs> right. and, and the demon is portrayed as a very cuddly, adorable, positive animal who's your companion and who helps you. 
And the bad religious people want to separate people from their demons. Wow. And that's what that's we're terrifying. See, one of the points, I've gotten to a little bit of a discussion at a, at a Hanukkah party with a, with a friend of mine. And my point would be we spend so much money and so much time to make sure our kids get the right religious education, to try to, to keep away uh, the influences of pornography and, and, and some of the, the more horrible things in the culture. And then after going through that effort to say, ah, well, this is just a movie, we're going to send our kids into this world, I, I think parents should be very, very careful about that. And at the very least, if, if they've decided, well, everybody else is doing it, first of all, that's terrible logic, but if you decide that, and you're going to send your kids, you should go first, so at least you can talk to them about it. When you saw in the in the film the representation of the, the demon, uh, the soul that lives outside of the, the children's bodies, represented by these animals, and they're described on the website as an animal spirit, did you see... Uh, the connotation there of Eastern mysticism and uh, and and spirit guides. Uh, no, that's that's pretty subtle. I think most people don't get that. What they will get is that they're these adorable animals because they're done by computer graphics, and one is a uh, a little weasel which is very cute, and then there's a not so likable Nicole Kidman's in the movie, and she plays the the, uh, the main villainess, and she has an unpleasant uh, demon. But most of the demons are, are really adorable. Uh, Sam, Sam Elliott has an, a, a demon who's a, a rabbit with, with big floppy ears, and, and they hug them. You hug the demons, and, you, and, and they're like your best friends. And, and the main character, Lyra Velacqua, who's played by a very talented little girl, uh, her, her demon is so sweet that, that when the religious authorities want to separate her from her demon, it seems terribly cruel. Hmm. Michael Medved is our guest. He is a syndicated talk show host and movie critic who has viewed The Golden Compass. Uh, Michael, uh, a lot of these things you're describing to us are obviously disturbing for parents, and, and uh, you know, this is a, you know, we hate to see this kind of thing happen. But it's important that we know that the decision that we have to make, and I know that you're a big proponent of families. And, uh, Michael, talk a little about encourage families. You've got to come to a decision on whether or not you're going to see it. Um, and, and talk a little bit about the family making the final decision here because it's so important. Well, sure. One of the things that um, we talk about on, on my radio show a lot, and that, that actually my wife and I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Saving Childhood, Protecting Our Children from the National Assault on Innocence. And one of the themes in, in our work has always been that one of the most important gifts that any parent can give to any child is the courage to be different. Because you're going to want your kids to be different at some point. Uh, they, kids turn out to be teenagers, and other kids are doing drugs. You want your kids to be different. Uh, uh, teenagers and uh, or late adolescents, kids may be engaged in irresponsible sexuality. You want your kids to say no and to be different. And so the, the one thing that I would say is that, of course, a lot of parents are going to say, well, Sally and Bobby are going to see the movie. Why can't I see it? Right. Why, why am I the only one who can't see this movie? And this provides a great opportunity for parents to talk about what faith is all about, which is, yes, about being different. Yes, about turning aside from the world and, and saying that, well, okay, um, there, there may be tons and tons of people who are going this way, but we're going the opposite direction because God expects that of us. And, and one of the fascinating things for, for people like me who, who are rooted in the Jewish community 
is that's the main theme of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not about tolerance, as some people have said. Hanukkah means, uh, in Hebrew, uh, dedication, purification, rededication. And the, the heroes of the Hanukkah story, the Maccabees, came back and purified the temple. They got rid of the multiculturalists who had put up a variety of idols for everybody's uh, worshiping pleasure, saying, uh-uh, no, this is no good. And, and that idea in your own home, not imposing it on anybody else, but imposing it on your own home and imposing leadership and values on your own children, that's at the very core of what God expects of us. Michael Medved, thank you so much for your time. You're a syndicated talk show host and movie critic. We appreciate it. Thank you for your thoughts. And it's been great talking to you, my friend. God bless you and your work. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, and you too. And I'm, I'm glad we can help spread the word about this one. Of course, Michael Medved uh, of the Jewish faith, and he's a great culture warrior. That was an interview done Thursday with uh, John McClain and Linda Stringer of KCBI. We'll have another culture warrior on with us on Monday. Pat Buchanan has written a new book, Day of Reckoning. That will be a great interview. But ladies and gentlemen, let me just leave you with this. When we think about uh, this type of uh, entertainment coming out of Hollywood, targeting our kids, uh, in Philippians chapter 4, Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, pure, lovely, good of good report, these are the things we should meditate on and expose to our children. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.